morons, miracles, and the message. And so we're going to pray, and we'll be in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 this morning, talking about a, a culture of the kingdom. Shalom. Father, we take time now and we pray, even here. You've compelled us and moved us to to pursue getting into our building and we entrust your timing, Lord. We, we can only take one step at a time and you direct our steps. And so here in this gathering space today, we pray earnestly for surprises from you, from favor from you, that we might establish in our city, in the South End, Lord, from West Seattle all the way down to Redondo here on the west side of the Metroplex, a beachhead for the gospel, Lord, where we can raise up disciples and have family classes in child raising and marriage classes and theology classes, and Lord, where we can reach out to our community and support and give. And We're just trusting you to bring us into our home in your timing, but in this season, I pray that you would lay on the hearts of every person who calls Taproot Church home, every person, Lord, who doesn't call Taproot Church home, stir the hearts to give in these next phases of fundraising and working and laboring. And now, Lord, to the true work, you building your kingdom, a garden city, this community, here in this city, through the church. We open the scriptures this morning your word in our hearts resulting in transformation and joy and truth and humanity living as you always intended, full of peace, full of joy, full of love. May you meet with us here today in a profound way. May each of us be spoken to and transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have a whole spread of ages in this church from babies all the way up to 90 years old. But for those of you that are post high school, how many of you remember, just think back with me, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you remember the particular social group that you fit into in high school? I'm 20 years removed from my 1995 graduation from Gooding High School, and I can still remember to this day, even now, which group I specifically fit into and my clique of friends. And even at our 20-year reunion, 20 years removed, all of us have our careers and our marriages and our children. We all defaulted at our 20-year reunion, not in the malicious, vicious way that we did in high school, but just out of a default to those friends that we had, that circle of community that was around us. Now, back in my day, They had names for these groups, and I don't know what you kids call them today, but back in my day, we had the stoners and the jocks, the goths, the emos, the punks, the punk rockers, the metalheads, the skaters, the nerds, the beautiful, the ugly, the popular, the unpopular. We had all of these groups, and we knew, and I knew, and everyone else knew specifically which group each person fit into, and I'll say this about the social strata of high school society. Those groups are non-negotiable. They're virtually impossible to transfer from one group to the other. It was a very rare thing. I remember Steve Elgin, who was a nerd and one of the Mormon kids, big old thick glasses, comes back from his freshman year to his sophomore year. He went from being like 5'2 to like 6'11 in a year, (laughs) grew a beard, took off his glasses, and became one of the most profound athletes at Gooding High School. He transferred from the nerd group to the jock group. It was an amazing transformation, but that was rare, very rare. In high school, we found who we were. We defined our identity by the group within which we existed. We were either affirmed and included by the group in which we recreated and had fun with, or we were excluded and dishonored by the group that we wanted to be a part of, but the point being our identity and our value was formed by our social standing, who said what about us and around us. This is what we call in sociology and anthropology an honor-shame culture. Now, there are many different threads, themes, 
that run through cultures. We have guilt-innocence cultures. We have fear-power cultures. And we have honor-shame cultures. Now, anthropologist Ruth Benedict, she was the first really to popularize the idea that there's a difference between a fear-power culture and a guilt-innocence culture and an honor-shame culture. She wrote, in a guilt culture, which is what predominantly the United States has been known for here in the West, in a guilt culture, Benedict writes, you know that you are good or bad by what your conscience feels. In a shame culture, you know you are good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honors or excludes you. In a guilt culture, people sometimes feel they do bad things. In a shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel that they are bad. Now, cultural observers and commentators such as Andy Crouch, David Brooks from The Times, New York Times columnist, and even Time magazine have noted that with the development of social media, there has also been the rise of this honor-shame culture reality. In 2014, Time Magazine released a very interesting article entitled Insta-Shame. And they were tracking teenage girls and their use of the social media platform Instagram. Instagram, for those of you that don't know, (laughs) is a platform, it's an application wherein you take pictures and then your friends can get onto that app and they can put little hearts that say, I like your picture, and then they can make comments. Time Magazine was doing an article on how these teenage girls had developed an entire culture of honor and dishonor, acceptance and unacceptance, based on their photos, and there was an entire language that developed within Instagram that these teenage girls understood. There were codes and all sorts of ways of speaking, you're accepted in my group by how many likes I put on your picture, and you're not accepted in my group because I put this photo up at this time with this group of girls in it. That's shame-honor culture. That is interwoven into the fabric of our human hearts. Now, We may say, oh, those silly teenagers. But the reality is, this honor-shame culture carries itself all the way through into adulthood. My wife was telling me that she follows some lifestyle Instagrammers. Do you know who these people are? These are ladies, usually stay-at-home moms, who take pictures of their new curtains or their cups of coffee with their little bagels in the morning, all of these finely staged photos. And my wife was telling me that there was an Instagram battle that broke out between these lifestyle blogger moms on Instagram, wherein one woman had taken a picture of her cup of coffee in the morning, and another woman later that day, another famous Instagrammer, had taken her picture of a cup of coffee staged in very similar fashion. And photo taker number one got after photo taker number two saying, you copied my photo, how dare you? And it blew up into hundreds of comments of these lifestyle Instagram followers shaming and honoring each other based on a picture of a cup of coffee. (laughs) Honor-shame dynamics are interwoven into everything that we do as humanity. We laugh at, we're concerned about our teenage daughters basing their value on how many of their friends like their picture. That's concerning. We think it's silly that hundreds of people would find it so important to comment and argue on the nature of a photo of a cup of coffee and another person's photo of a cup of coffee. But for all of us, we are interwoven into and we experience honor and shame all through our lives. We are in a constant pursuit for our photos to be liked. We want to be noticed. We are desperate to be accepted. Now, a wise man, his name was Solomon, wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And in those pages, he explained how he had everything that the world would say made him honorable, and it was all vanity. 
In Ecclesiastes 4.4, Solomon said, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. What Solomon was seeing was that everything we do, climbing the corporate ladder, achievements athletically, seeking to appear popular and beautiful in the eyes of our peers, there's always an intermingling of envy that drives that. There's always an intermingling of a motivation driven by a need to be accepted and cared for and honored and valued by our peer group. There is nothing wrong with climbing the social ladder, taking pictures of cups of coffee, wearing nice clothes, and working out. But what we must grasp is that undergirding some of those decisions is this intermingling of honor and shame and a desire for acceptance. And the reason for that, the Bible tells us, the grand story, the explanation for that, is because sin has made us dishonorable and we feel it. Guilt is a sense of, I have done wrong. Shame is a sense of, I am wrong. Guilt is a sense of, I have done something bad. Shame is a sense of, I am bad. And interwoven into the human heart from the fall of Adam and Eve unto this day is a sense that we are no longer honorable, that we are indeed no longer acceptable, that not only have we done something wrong, but we in and of ourselves are wrong. Not only have we done bad bad things, but there is something bad about us. And so we will fight about the honor of pictures of cups of coffee. And we will pursue fame and glory and standards of success so that we might satiate that need for acceptance and honor, all the while becoming more and more desperate and never finding it. That brings us to the Corinthian church. This little community of people that Paul had led to Jesus through the gospel had become a fledgling church out on the Aegean Sea, and they had adopted standards of worldly acceptance and honor into their community of faith. And Paul's whole point in planting churches, in planting the gospel, was to plant outposts of what the kingdom would look like. The gospel transforms human values and human desires and human understandings of acceptance and honor to reflect what they will look like in the kingdom. And so this little fledgling church, rather than living like a colony of heaven together, rather than living like a new humanity basing its values and identities on the kingdom to come, had adopted standards of the world, just like Taproot Church. You see, we are entrenched in this honor-shame culture. And so even within the church, we have these worldly standards of honor and dishonor, acceptance and not acceptance, and the gospel brings transformation to that. That is part of the process of sanctification. And so what Paul does here in our passage is he gives the Corinthian church, and he gives to us three deep considerations. Remember, Transformation doesn't come because God says change your behavior. The gospel and the Bible is not about behavior modification. This isn't a feel-good message that just says, hey, you need to be nice to everybody so we can be a tolerant culture. No, this is a heart-level message that gets down into our guts and says, you need to accept and love each other because you're accepted and loved by God. Consider this, believe this. If your belief in the gospel and your acceptance in God is deep and true, then it will transform the culture. And so what Paul is doing here through these three considerations that we're gonna look at is he is taking the church from a worldly culture standards to a culture of the kingdom. And remember, we've been using this word shalom. Paul is saying, I want you to consider these things so that as a church, you will be a culture of shalom. What is shalom? The ancient Hebrew prophets said that shalom is the way things ought to be. It's the way that things should be. 
human beings loving and caring for, accepting one another based on who their God is. So we're going to look at these three considerations, starting this morning with number one. Paul says, I want you to consider your callings. Consider your callings. There in verse 26, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul calls on the Corinthian church to remember who they were when they became part of the church. What he is doing is he is correcting them because they had come into the church as weak, as foolish, as ennoble, dishonorable, not accepted, and they had adopted these worldly standards and divided from one another and separated from one another based on these ideas of wisdom and power and nobility. And Paul says, hey, let's go back to the beginning. Do you remember where you were when God brought you his acceptance into this community? You weren't wise. You weren't powerful. You weren't renowned. You weren't at the top of the podium. You weren't the most educated. And so Paul is bringing them back to the beginning of their acceptance in Jesus Christ. Now, Friedrich Nietzsche said that Christianity was a religion that began for slaves and women. And what he was doing there was he was criticizing Christianity. It was a religion for the weak, for the oppressed, for the marginalized. But what Nietzsche didn't understand was that his criticism was actually a complementary so it was a compliment. It was a truth to who Jesus was and the community that he created. Christianity has always been the religion for the weak, the broken, the unaccepted, the dishonored, the untouchable, the depressed, those who are in debt, those who are scared, those who are afraid. Christianity has always been so much more than a crutch, but the life of broken people, hurt people, lost people. It's important that Paul here, we see him saying, not many of you were noble, not many of you were wise, not many of you were rich. Paul is not saying that if you're successful in the world, you're famous, or you hold high power in politics or in your business. Paul is not saying if you're successful financially and you have a lot of money, that you indeed cannot be a Christian. But he's saying it was very difficult, and it is very difficult, for those who are successful by the world's standards to come to trust in Jesus as their Savior. Why? It's a matter of identity and faith. Jesus confronted a rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. This rich young ruler is successful by the world's standards, and he comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus is opening up this man's heart. Are you really looking for who God is? Do you really understand what goodness is? Do you really understand what you're asking, Jesus is saying to this rich young ruler? And then he goes on and he answers this young man's question. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you need to honor your mother and father and you need to not steal and make sure that you don't murder. Love your neighbor as yourself. He alludes to the back half of the first 10 commandments of God. This young man looks at him and I believe with fullness of humility and and integrity says, Jesus, I've done that. And then Jesus gets to the heart of this kid. He takes it from the way that this kid could behave and he gets after what this kid is really trusting in and building his identity on. He says, okay, you've done all of that. You've been very religious. You've honored. You've obeyed. You haven't stolen. You haven't murdered. Now I want you to take all of your possessions and sell them and give them to the poor to be perfect. Matthew tells us that this rich young ruler walked away disheartened because he had great wealth. And the lesson that the gospel writer is giving to us and the lesson that Jesus was giving to us, as he goes on, he says how difficult it will be for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? Because the human heart is given over to these false identities because of our sin. And oftentimes, what we think is success in the world is actually damning the heart. 
Oftentimes what we see as God has blessed them with riches, God has blessed them with success, God has blessed them with power and wisdom and nobility. If Jesus was to ask that person, get rid of this, let go of that, lose that, sell everything and go work in the leper colony, how many would actually do it? This rich young man couldn't do it. And so there's a check in the heart And what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying and what Christianity has said for thousands of years now is brokenness is good. Weakness is a good place to be. Being the untouchable, the unseen, without success, that actually may be God's very grace in our lives. Three things that are produced by considering our own personal callings. Number one, When we think back on where we were when Jesus called us, when Jesus saved us and brought us into this community called the church, when we consider that deeply, it produces thankfulness. We find ourselves saying, wow, I'm so thankful that God pursued me, that God came after me. Just a couple days ago, I don't know why, but the man that led me to Jesus, Jason Graybill, came to my mind, and I realized in that moment, I owe him my eternal life. And he wasn't eloquent. We'll talk about this a lot next week. He wasn't eloquent in sharing the gospel with me. He and I would get hammered together. And he was a backslidden Christian. And we'd both be in a drunken stupor. And he'd be like, dude, your life is so screwed up. You need Jesus. I'm like, you're drunk, dude. What are you talking about? (laughs) Jesus was in Jason in all of his brokenness. And Jason knew he needed to get me somewhere. And so he got me to his Christian aunt and uncle who shared the gospel with me in sobriety. And I'm so thankful that a drunk Christian led a drunk, stoned, demonized kid to his Christian aunt and uncle in the middle of Hazleton, Idaho to meet Jesus. I'm just thankful for that. I don't merit any of that. It's not like I can stand before all of you and say, I was so wise and searching for such depth in my life. No, I was hammered and demonized, and Jesus saved me. (coughs) Number two, it produces a deep humility. If there is a problem in the Christian church that God is purging and purifying in these days of increasing marginalization. It's pride. The church has held in the culture over the last 50 years in the West a position of power. We come from a Christian culture here in the United States. And over the last 50 years with large churches and right-wing red Republican in the name of Jesus votes We've had the power position. And in the last 20 years, that has been turned upside down on its head. And in the last five years, literally, our heads are spinning from the moral revolution that is occurring all around us. And what that is doing is it is producing humility in the church where no longer can we stand back with pride-filled fingers pointed saying, look how good we are and look how bad all of you are. No, we have to step back and say, Why am I even a Christian? This is very difficult. I could lose my job as a Christian. I'm not going to get promoted because I'm a Christian. And that consideration brings us back to our original calling. Why am I a Christian? What brought me here? The resurrected Jesus, and it's humbling. And then finally, number three, when we consider our own personal callings and where we were when God called us, it gives us proper perspective on the journey to Jesus. You see, we can get entangled with the world standards of success just like the Corinthian church did. We become Christians, and I, I remember when I very first became a Christian, I was suffering from, from LSD-induced paranoia. I was suffering from uh, just a whole lot of really crazy stuff in those days. And I remember just about a year in praying, Lord Jesus, I know I'm crazy. I know I'm messed up. I know I don't know what's going on, but if If I can just have you, I will live this way. I will be like this. If I could have you for all of eternity, I'm fine if I have to spend the next 80 years with the voices and the bonkerness of my head. I'm fine with it. And over the years, God was healing my mind. and, And then all of a sudden, rather than just being thankful and having this matter of perspective of like, whoa, I'm saved, all of a sudden my identity became, well, I need to have this success and I need to have this peer group recognize me and I need to make sure that I have that much money so that then I'm comfortable. And, then, and it's, always done, it's always done in, well, I gotta be prudent and wise and make sure that my kids are taken care of. There's a level to that, but that's also very deceptive. Considering our calling 
reminds us of what really matters. Does the house you live in for 80 years before you go to your grave really matter? <laughs> Does it really matter? Now, there's nothing wrong living in a wonderful house. I want to live in a big house. Actually, I want to live on a house down on the water with a view. That's, and maybe God will do that someday. But if that's my primary drive, there's nothing wrong with pursuing and climbing the corporate ladder. We have some of the most gifted leaders I've ever met in this church. And your acumen in the medical field and in business are really without measure. Do that unto the glory of God and remember what really matters. Remember, remember why you became a Christian. Probably because you were broken uh, and, and you, were the, you were the low guy on the, on the totem pole. You were, you were somebody's slave doing whatever they told you to do. Remember what really matters. We've got to move on. Paul says, consider your calling, but he also says, For this to be a community of shalom, for us to be an outpost of the kingdom of God, we have to consider God's choice. And there's two transforming, healing, kind of get down deep into your heart considerations when we think about God's choice of us. One of them is a personal transformation that occurs. And number two, there's a societal or a corporate transformation that occurs. Number one, let's look at this. Paul says, consider God's choice of you. In verse 27 down through verse 28, we see God chose, God chose, God chose. God chose you. And so Paul says, I want you to consider why he chose you. He chose you because you were weak. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even those things that are not. God chose nobodies to show who he is to the everybodies. And when we consider that personally, what it does for us is it frees us from our shame. When we begin to realize that I have made foolish choices and I don't have to compensate for those foolish choices anymore. I don't have to say, okay, well, I'll do this and this and this to make up for that dumb decision that I made. I'll do this and this and this for that decision that I didn't make, for that action that I took for, that was foolish. But when we realize God chose me because of the foolish decisions that I was making, have made, and will made, and will make, excuse me, then all of a sudden I can just be the fool that I am accepted by God because he chose me. And it relieves me of my shame. When I come to realize, when you and I come to realize that God chose us because we were weak, God chose us because we weren't on the podium but because we were last place. And I I just want to ask you guys this morning, have you reached that point in your life ever where you've just felt like, I don't have any energy left. I am literally so emotionally worn down right now that I have nothing left. Have you, have you been there? Have you been to the place where you look out around the crowd and you look at your friends, you look at your peers and you think, their marriages are amazing. I just don't have any ability to live this way. Their careers are so successful. They have the Midas touch. They go around, they just touch it, gold, gold, gold. And it seems like I go around and I touch it and it just breaks and breaks and breaks. And I am so tired, I don't want to do it anymore. God chose you there. And you don't have to fight that weakness. You can let that weakness envelop you and it becomes almost like an incubating womb in which a new you is being born, a fully you, you is being born. Have you reached the point ever where you feel so unnoticed, so unseen? You know, I started with the high school click thing because I think 95% of us in this room would say, yeah, I was in the unseen click. I was the nerd. And I want to make a confession to you guys. You know, 20 years ago, uh, I, I was not in that group. I was a top-ranked hurdler in the state of Idaho. I was a stereotype, literally. I was the captain of the football team, me and my two best friends. I was dating the head cheerleader, one of the most popular guys in school, big-time party guy, all that stuff. 
And looking back on it, that was actually what was keeping me from Jesus. And that was actually the path that led me down this road to not being noticed. Because from 18 to 21, when I landed in a psych ward and was trying not to literally kill myself, that's when God brought me into this whole world of not being noticed and not being popular and being the weird guy and and losing everything. If today you've made foolish choices, if today you feel weak, if today you feel like I'm the one that's on the outside, consider God's choice of you. The maker of heaven and earth looked at you and said, I choose you. You're on my team. I accept you as you are. But I've made such foolish decisions and I don't have any strength left and I never am noticed by anybody. But I accept you. I love you. I choose you. Now that can be in your mind cerebrally and your heart can still be driven by, okay, I've got to be chosen. I've got to get out there. I've got to make this. No. What this consideration of God's choice of us does is it helps us to sit in our weak, unnoticed foolishness and be loved by God. And it becomes this incubator in which God is working by his spirit saying, my love for you is enough. My acceptance of you is enough. And that removes the shame. And now we, now we stand before God and his people every day a little bit closer to this, our chest a little bit puffed out, not out of pride, our head held a little bit higher, our shoulders back just a little bit more saying, the God of the universe applauds me this morning. I hear him and his angels singing my praise because of Jesus. And it frees us as we consider his choice. Number two, though, there's this societal transformation that occurs. David Garland, one of the commentators that I read, said this, God did not choose the weak to make them strong, to help them move into the ranks of the upper crust or to begin a new class struggle Here's why God chose us. He chose us to subvert and invert and convert human values. God chose the goofiest, most messed up, most unnoticed, weak people and some rich people and some powerful people because there are some, mind you, if you have money in here that does not negate your Christianity, that's actually a calling in your life to give to our building project. (laughs) Spiritual manipulation at its best. That right there was a joke as well, just so everybody knows. That was a joke. There's a societal transformation that occurs. God chose us so that, now hear me clearly, the people in Burien, the people in in the west side of the Seattle Metroplex, they should be able to go to the pub and walk in, and this is what has happened over the last 10 years through our church in this city. You walk into Burian Press, you walk into Smarty Pants, you walk into Elliott Bay Brewery uh, at some point when The Point opens up and all the other breweries and pubs and restaurants that we're praying for to come into this city and prosper. You walk in there, people should be able to see Taprutians and other members of the Church of Jesus Christ and their values are inverted. They see a people where it's perfectly normal for a grandma to be hanging out with a 13-year-old. We are praying intentionally that the values that our society holds would be inverted by us. Over the next few weeks, as we begin to talk about evangelism and the sharing of the message, we want to talk about as well, I was at, a, I was at an event here, I think Friday night, and one of the statistics that was given by the speaker, the latest counts, and she couldn't find the actual sources and data that lined up, but She said in the greater Highline area, there are 70 to 150 language groups represented in the schools. What? That means that we, as an inverted culture, a colony of heaven, should actually not have black and white and Mexican and Asian as our definitive marks. That is something that we have to intentionally work against. We're going to be talking about different ways that God does that through us relationally as we just love people and not in a plastic programmy way. But God chose us, those that don't speak other languages. In this church at this point, an upper white middle class church, he has positioned us with the complete inability to reach 150 language groups. 
And he's going to do that so that the values of this society are inverted. And it sweeps through like leaven in the loaf throughout this culture. And what we are praying for is that this entire city, this entire region experiences revival. The kingdom come on earth and it comes through us considering God's choice of us as shame is removed. Finally, this morning as we close. Consider your calling. It will produce thankfulness. It will produce humility. It will remind you of what really matters. Consider God's choice of you. This is where your shame is relieved and you find yourself honored by the Father because of Jesus. And finally, we close by considering God's community. Now, I just alluded to this, but Murphy O'Connor says that historically, many were attracted to the Christian faith because, quote, it introduced them into a society committed to looking at them primarily as people, all equally valuable and valued. It gave them a space in which they could flourish in freedom. The attractiveness of a church like ours is that you can walk into this place, whatever color your skin, whatever economic status, and if you are responding and growing and maturing as Christians, that person will walk in and they will see, I'm accepted here. I'm welcome here. I'm loved here. That is the beginning of revival. That is how the message is shared. Now, I want to close here with three things about God's community. First of all, looking at its source. Let's consider the source of God's community. I'll illustrate it. In Idaho, where I grew up, I grew up in southern Idaho, and me and my buddy would oftentimes throw on a backpack, and rather than going all the way up to the mountains, we would go up into the foothills that were nestled right before the Sawtooth Mountains. It's high arid desert, dry sagebrush, think city of rocks, lava flows, dry. And we would pick a canyon. We'd go into the front end of a canyon. These canyons out there go for miles and miles. We would put on our backpacks and, and have water and food, and, and two days into this canyon, all of a sudden we would come around the corner and there would be this lush green and there would be antelope and hawks and rabbits and just this beautiful oasis nestled hidden into this canyon in the middle of this wilderness. What occurred in the lava tubes and the underground geology of southern Idaho is all these deep underwater springs. And in certain places in these canyons, that source of life just breaks up, flows for 150, 200 meters, and then drops into another lava tube so you never see it again. Out in the middle of nowhere, through just the source of this water, this, this, this unseen, unnoticed source, this community of life would crop up. And Jason and I would sit out there and, you know, mark down on our topographical maps where we were and try to go back, and we followed a... We followed the birth of uh, an eagle one summer. It was amazing, amazing. When we consider God's community, it's like we are an oasis in a wilderness. Jesus is the centerpiece. He's that water of life that just is rising up, and it's unseen. Nobody really knows where the source is coming from, where the joy is coming from, where the vulnerability comes from, but it's all in God's people being sourced in Jesus in this wilderness of dishonor, this wilderness of lack of acceptance, this wilderness of shame and hurt, uprises this community with its centerpiece and its source being Jesus. God's choice of us and God's work in us becomes this stream of life. And as we mature, what's happening is that stream continues to overflow and then it fills up the various pools and cleanses them out throughout the city. Number two, the strength of our community is in Jesus himself as well. Read with me there in verse 30. Jesus is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We will never be an accepting community of shalom until we actually embrace the truth that Jesus, through his wisdom, is our means of being right. We are right with God, and we are right with each other, not because of the way we look, not because of our education, not because of where we live, not because of our work, 
not because of the clothes we wear, not because of our athletic prowess. We are right. We are justified because Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't live, and now he's the source of that righteousness. And once we come to grips with that reality, and that reality drops more deeply down into our hearts, that's where we find ourselves actually accepting each other as we are. He's our wisdom. He's our sanctification. Sanctification is a big Bible word, a very important Bible word. And the best way that we try to translate that to get it into our own vernacular here is sanctification is you becoming fully you in the midst of other yous. All of us are trying to define ourselves today in some measure. I define myself as I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. And in a culture of shame, most of us are saying, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not that. I'll never be this. Jesus is our source and our strength and he's our sanctification because as we're in him, our dishonor is removed and we are clothed in his honor, clothed in his righteousness and in that incubator, there we can sit and be loved and in the quiet and in the stillness where all the masks are taken off and the sense of acceptance is laid full and bare in our hearts, shed abroad the love of God by the Holy Spirit, there we are sanctified, there we become fully us. Not the loss of you, not some weird Buddhist nirvana thing where you lose your personality in Jesus. No, you become fully you in Jesus. That's the process of sanctification. And the strength is also that our shame is taken completely. Verse 30 is the wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Redemption has its roots going clear back to the book of Exodus where Joseph was sold into slavery and 400 years later, Moses leads them out from under slavery. Our guilt and our shame in Jesus was taken. Now hear this clearly. How so? Jesus was ultimately shamed. Think through this. He was stripped naked, humiliated, spit upon. The worst form of unacceptance that you can possibly imagine. He was crucified and hung up before everybody. He took upon himself our shame. That sense of I'm naked, And when I'm looked at, I'm seen as humiliating and gross and ugly. Jesus, so that you would know he accepts you and loves you, took all of that shame upon himself so that you'll never be shamed again. Jesus took your humiliation. Jesus took your lack of acceptance. Jesus took your dishonor completely for you. And that redemption, that purchase price is the source and the strength of this community. It's what we focus on in our HGs. It's what we focus on in our marriages. It's what we focus on in raising kids. For all you high school kids and the student ministry teams, that's what you focus on here as students, as you're learning and growing and as you're loving kids in your high school and in your junior highs and in your peer relationships. Jesus is making you full of you and you don't have to cover yourselves up anymore. He's covered you. And then finally, we close with this. As we consider God's community, its source, its strength, let's think about its speech. What does the speech of God's community look like? What is the speech, what is the, the language of a community of shalom, a colony of the kingdom look like? It looks like heaven. It means that our conversations are no longer filled with backbiting Gossip, slander, anger, bitterness. It means that our conversations are filled with boasts about Jesus. A kingdom culture, a maturing church, a church that is maturing, Christians that are maturing within a church, the language will reflect that maturity and what will be happening in increasing measure will be people will be wanting to talk about Jesus and praise Jesus for what Jesus is doing in their lives right now. Notice what Paul says there in verse 31. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The cross creates what we call in theology a cruciform community. This church, this community reflecting Jesus more and more and more. And so this church should be a church full of jocks and goths and emos and punk rockers and metalheads, beautiful and ugly, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, dishonored, broken. This church, as we allow God's choice to transform us, 
will become an oasis in the wilderness. Already is this, this unseen, unnoticed wilderness in the oasis. Think about us getting into our property. That property is a space where more streams and tributaries can be added to that pool of cleanliness that's going out. And what this church can and should be becoming in the next 20, 30 years is multiple churches being planted with a language, a speech that goes forth into the city saying, I was broken, my boast is in Jesus. I was dishonored, my honor is in Jesus. Are you broken? Do you feel like you've done foolish things? Do you feel like you're always in dead last? Do you feel like everybody else is getting what you wanted and you get none of it? Then God has chosen you. That's preaching the gospel, you guys. When you go into your workplaces this week, when you're with your friends in your high schools and junior highs, when you're with your peer groups this week, you're going to hear them in this, in this honor-shame culture, and they're going to be saying, I want acceptance. I want to be valued. I want to be made worthy. And there you are, a broken fool, saying, the answer is Jesus. And the more deeply you actually experience that, the more deeply that gets down into your hearts, what will bubble up out of your hearts, the overflow of your hearts, will be Jesus. It's not some program where you say, all right, we're gonna go share the gospel. No, the gospel shares you. That's what happens. You just share you in the gospel. We're gonna partake of communion here this morning. We take communion every week at this church, believing that it's mandated by Jesus to remember his work on our behalf, the shame that he took on our behalf. There'll be people right up here in the front with wine and bread and we come forward. I ask every week we take communion together just to build that sense of we are doing this together. Educated and uneducated, black, white, red, yellow, green, purple, whatever color you find yourself in this morning. We hold that bread and we hold the, the, the spilt wine of Jesus, his blood, together as a community of shalom, his blood having cleansed us. This morning, if you're not a Christian, you were brought here with a friend, today truly is your day. And I'll just ask you one more time before we come to communion. Have you done foolish things? God chose you. Do you feel weak and outcast and unseen and broken? God has chosen you. Danny, what do I need to do to, to be saved? Sell everything. I don't just mean your physical property. I'm using a metaphor here. Sell everything. Give up on everything. Turn your life to Christ. Turn your life over to Jesus. Well, I don't understand what faith means and I have so many doubts. Good. Bring all of that to Jesus too. Sit there in his acceptance. But I'm not even sure he exists. He knows that and he accepts you in your doubt. <laughs> That's what faith is. It's this gnarly, nasty, messy gift that God gives to us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time with my family this morning. Every week is always a tremendous honor and privilege to, to share the word. But this morning in particular, I felt so just deeply intertwined with these souls and the souls of the churches represented in this city. Lord, I am praying this morning for Beery and EV right across the street and Mike and the guys over there for Evergreen down on the corner on First Avenue, for Tim and the guys at Highline. Lord, we're praying for Three Tree and Sean. We are praying this morning for uh, Richard Dover and the guys over at Open Door. We're praying for Pat at Westside. Lord, we're praying for the church here in our city, and we're praying for the churches in our city, the churches that love Jesus. God, that we would be an outpost of the kingdom, a community of shalom, we pray, Lord, to be an oasis, that you would make us an oasis in our city. And I pray this week that as the waters, the living waters flow out of the hearts of these saints this week as they recognize their acceptance, that they would go into their coffee shops and their pubs and their classrooms, into their families, into their workplaces, and, and wash clean their cities, wash clean the people around them. Father, I am praying that where there is a sense of dislike for this message. I don't want to accept that person. I don't want to think about that person as my brother, my sister. I pray that right now you'd bring us to the foot of the cross. 
I pray, Lord, if, if one has something against a brother or a sister in this room, if there's conflict in the marriage this morning, as they come to the cross, to the communion table, they would look at each other and say, I'm a fool, I'm weak. I, I've made foolish decisions, but I'm accepted in Jesus, and so I accept you. And may we be able to accept each other based on that. Lord, I'm going to pray a bold prayer. I'm going to pray a bold prayer over these years, watching people come and go in conflict, that even right now, you would, you would stir the hearts of the people that have either left or in conflict. It, stir the hearts of the people that have been hurting from the Mars Hill implosion over these last couple years. Lord, bring healing to our city. Bring healing to the hearts. We know that soon the kingdom will come, Lord, and we will be able to see every decision, every motivation. We'll see how you used it as confusing, as broken, as jacked up, as painful as it is. Nobody's going to stand in the kingdom and say, look what I was able to do. We're all going to say it was a train wreck. Jesus fixed it. It was a total mess, total anarchy, total chaos. We could do nothing to fix it. Weak, lost, broken, My boast is in Jesus. God, here in communion, where the veil between heaven and earth thins, may the community of Christ this morning boast in Jesus. May you unclothe us, take off of us now those rags of dishonor. Lord, where we have been entangled and wrapped up and clothed in dishonor, clothed in a sense of brokenness, clothed in a sense of emotional badness, right now in this space and in this time with the blood of Jesus and his body remembered in a family, may that soul experience for the very first time total acceptance, total love, total care, unconditional, never leaving, always for us, always changing us, never giving up on us, love. God, may we surrender to that love fully and completely, totally and entirely, and may it make us, us together. I am praying for a glimpse of what the kingdom will be like. God, I'm praying for just a couple wins in this season in our church, that Satan would not have his way in breaking us and deceiving us, that sin would be cleansed and we would be made right with each other. Help us, Lord, increase our love for one another as we love you this morning. And as we sing these songs, I pray that you would draw each heart right now, even just listening to your voice through the scriptures, let them surrender. Help them to let go, to completely and entirely let go, quit fighting, Quit striving. Quit worrying. Just, just for 10 minutes of worship, God, give us a glimpse of heaven. Give us a glimpse of what it's like to love each other so deeply and truly and unconditionally because you love us so dre- deeply and truly and unconditionally. And so we worship you. And we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all